Thank you, Brandon. When Brandon and I started meeting, I think the idea was that I would maybe mentor him. Every time we meet, he's mentoring me, praying for me, pastoring me, really. He is a servant to others in this community, and for that I thank him. He also served this last week as one of our small group leaders for a preaching workshop that we hosted at our church, had just under 60 pastors in uh, the Wichita and uh, greater Kansas area here um, to work on their word work, Um, and it is a joy to know that we're in this together, in it together. I have a Bible reading plan that kind of walks through the Bible in a year. Any of you follow a plan kind of like that where you're walking through various parts of Scripture? So in that plan, right now, I'm in the major prophets. You know, done Isaiah, done Jeremiah, and just kind of finished up Ezekiel. When you're in books like these, what, what are they? They are primarily words, words of the prophet that are the words of God spoken to the people of God, oftentimes to call them to repent, to turn around, to turn back to God. But occasionally, as you're reading through these long books of the Bible, you find the prophet not only speaking words, but performing actions that God has called them to do. And those actions speak as loud as words, sometimes even louder than words, because what they are intending to do is to shake them up, to get their attention so that they will heed the words of the prophet, so that they will respond to the words of the prophet. A lot of these actions, these symbolic, prophetic actions, are very unusual. Maybe even PG-13, for the sake of getting the attention. Those of you who have read through these, you know the kinds of things I'm talking about. Like when God commanded Isaiah to walk around naked for three years. That was the action. What did it symbolize? It symbolized that Egypt and Cush were going to be hauled off into exile in Assyria with none of their clothes on. And it happened. Or what about Jeremiah, whom God told to bury his undies in the dirt and then to later dig them up again? And what did he find when he dug them up again? Dirty draws. No surprises there. But what did it symbolize? It symbolized that the nation had become polluted by their idols and needed to repent. Or what about Ezekiel, when God had him almost playing with Legos in front of all of the Israelites? He had to take a brick and build siege work um, models. What did it symbolize? 
that Jerusalem was going to be under siege and that they needed to repent. Do you see actions that speak louder than words calling for actions on the part of people that also speak louder than simply giving lip service to faith in God? Well, as we come to our passage this morning in Matthew 21, at one level, we are simply seeing a story told of three events that took place when Jesus finally, he's been talking about it, right, showed up in Jerusalem. He rode into town on a donkey. He turned over tables within the temple, and then he cursed a fig tree. But at another level, these are more than simply narrated events. These are symbolic actions. Symbolic actions that speak louder than words because they are actually pointing back to the words of the prophet. They are meant to get the attention of the people in Jerusalem and they are meant to get our attention as well. They tell us, they speak something about Jesus, but they also speak something about how we are to respond to Jesus, to respond to him with more than simply our words. So bear these things in mind as we read this passage. I'm going to be reading verses 1 to, 20, uh, 1 to 22 of chapter 21. Would you please, if you were able, stand for the reading of God's word. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. 
And they said, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise and leaving them. He went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. And the disciples saw it, and they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So three actions that speak louder than words. What do these three actions speak? Well, I think at a really basic level, they're simply teaching us that when Jesus comes into town, he has authority. Authority that is not simply an earthly authority, but an authority that comes from heaven. An authority that is not simply human, but an authority from God. Why do I say that? Well, if you'll notice in the next paragraph that I didn't read, the way that the chief priests and the elders respond to him after he does all these things, they ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority, and he goes on then to have an interaction with them um, that I won't go into this morning, only to say it's showing he has an authority from heaven, from God, not from earth, not from man. But what specifically is that authority? I believe that what we are seeing in these synacts, these symbolic actions of Jesus as he enters in to Jerusalem is that he has the authority to bring salvation and judgment. That's what his actions speak. But how should we then respond to that with faith and repentance? That's basically what we're going to learn this morning. But let's look at the way that this unfolds in our passage by moving through three events or three actions three things that they speak about Jesus, and three ways that we should respond. The first action is Jesus traveling into town on a donkey. Jesus traveling into town on a donkey. What does this teach us? It teaches us that Jesus is the king who came to save his people. In the Old Testament, there are hints that the Lion of Judah, the King, the Messiah, would come on a donkey. But they're just hints. 
But Matthew, in verse 5, makes an editorial comment. He's letting us as readers in on the symbolic action that's taking place when he quotes Zechariah 9.9 and says to them, let me quote exactly what Zechariah 9.9 says, that all of this is taking place to fulfill what Zechariah said when he said, Rejoice greatly! O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. What does this represent? Well, if you go back and read Zechariah 9, which you may want to do um, for homework this afternoon, what you will see is that this king who was coming was a conquering king. He was a king who came to bring peace, but peace on the other side of war. He was a king who came to do away with all weaponry, but not until weapons had been utilized to bring down Tyre, to do away with Philistia. That's the picture. The picture of a conquering king who would defeat enemies. But interestingly, this conquering king doesn't show up into town on a war horse. Instead, he shows up on a donkey. I just saw at our church's Mom's Day Out program the other week this petting zoo with donkeys. When's the last time you saw a donkey? They're not very threatening. They don't immediately speak of conquering, overthrowing enemies. So what's he doing on a donkey? Did he come to conquer as the prophet said he would, or did he not? Well, yes and no. You better believe he came to conquer, and he's coming again to conquer. But he did so in a way that nobody was expecting. You see, Jesus came to deal with God's enemies, Who were they? All of us. In our sin, each and every one of us have rebelled against the king from heaven. And so what is due us? God's judgment and God's wrath. But when Jesus showed up the first time, humble and mounted on a donkey, he was saying, yeah, I'm coming to conquer enemies, but first I'm going to save them. He's been telling his disciples throughout the whole book of Matthew, what is he going to do when he shows up in Jerusalem? I'm going to a cross. I'm going to be handed over. By the chief priests and the elders, I'm going to be delivered over to the Gentiles and they're going to string me up on a cross. His disciples didn't get it. The crowds don't get it. He came to conquer. He came to conquer sin. 
He came to pay the penalty for your sin and for mine. So how should we respond to this unexpected king who came to save? We should rejoice. We should receive him. And we should do it right now. The crowds here teach us how to respond. They're rejoicing as Zechariah told them to do. And when they see Jesus coming, they are shouting, Hosanna. Now, what does that mean? I mean, it is, it is a word of joy. It is an acclamation of praise. But at the same time, it is a prayer. Hosanna literally means, save us, we pray. They don't get all this stuff about the cross, but what they know is that's the king and he's coming to save us. They believe it and so they cry out, Hosanna! Maybe one of the most important prayers that we could ever pray. We understand all that was represented on that first Palm Sunday. That Jesus came to die for our sins on the cross. We have more knowledge than they did. So therefore, there's a greater responsibility on each and every one of us in this room. We need to rejoice at the Savior. We need to receive Him. And we need to do so right now. Why? Remember all of those things everybody expected when the king would come, that he would conquer? It's going to happen. At his first coming, he came humble and mounted on a donkey to save us from our sins. At his second coming, he is coming to bring judgment to all who do not bow the knee to the king in faith. So we rejoice that he has come in humility. We receive him and we do so right now before it's too late. If you're out there right now and you're thinking, I'm waiting for another day, there may not be another day. Receive him right now because judgment is coming. And that's what the next two symbolic actions draw our attention to. Let's look at the next one. Jesus turning over the tables in the temple. What does this teach us? That's an action. What does it speak? It speaks that Jesus is coming to clean house. The religious leaders who were at the temple expected, they'd read their Bible, they expected that Jesus was going to come and clean house, clean the temple, even give them a new temple. But what they thought would happen when that happened they didn't think it would have anything to do with them. Isn't that how we always think? Yeah, we know God's coming to judge. We know God's going to deal with it, but he's not going to deal with me. When Jesus turns over the tables, he turns the tables on these men. They think that in their privileged position in the temple, that they are God's gift to the world. What they want swept out of God's house is all of the riffraff. 
But what's fixing to happen is something different. It's the riffraff that are coming to Jesus. And it's these religious snobs that are going to be run out of Dodge. The setting of this story is so critical for us to understand. So if we could, just for a minute, pull up your desks and let's go to school. The scene of this setting is in what's called the Court of the Gentiles. The temple complex was massive, 44 acres massive. The perimeter of the temple complex is about a mile around. We're talking four laps around the track big, right? And, and, and this is the court of the Gentiles. This is where the Gentiles can come, those who are not Jews, and they can come and worship the one true God. And most likely what's taking place is the merchants have set up shop in the court of the Gentiles. They're selling animals for sacrifice because all of these pilgrims have come for the Passover. And there's nothing wrong whatsoever with them buying and selling animals so that they can worship. There's nothing wrong with that. So why is Jesus so ticked off? I think this is what it is in a sentence. It's because the people with power and position are taking advantage of the people without power and position. Why do I say that? Well, for one, they're taking advantage of these Gentiles. They have displaced them. It's a little bit of gentrification going on. If I could say so. It's like, we're going to move our tables into your place. Now, yesterday, I'm at City League football, down on the south side. And I see something that is critical for football. A food truck selling chicken wings. Chicken wings and football go together. Chicken wings help people participate in the main event. Would you agree with me? Yes, sir. My mouth's watering for Willie's wings. And so I ordered four orders of wet lemon pepper. That's what you get if you're going to Willie's. But what if Willie decided he's going to drive his truck right down on the 50-yard line where the kids are playing? All of a sudden, this thing that is helping the main event starts to hurt the main event. That's what's going on here. That's what's going on here. This helpful service just drove on the field. But notice it didn't drive onto anybody's field. It didn't drive onto the important people's field. It just drove onto the field of the people that don't really matter to us. The Gentiles. We don't care squat about them, so we'll just squat in their place. The other way they're taking advantage of the people without power and position is they're ripping off the poor. 
probably ripping off everybody with the exchange rate. They've got the monopoly on that, maybe the price of the animals. But notice what Matthew says that the other gospel writers don't say. He says he, throws, he turns over the seats of those who sold pigeons. Were the rich folk buying pigeons? No, they're buying sheep. Who's buying pigeons? Poor folk buying the pigeons. Do you see what, do you see what Jesus is doing? These poor people, they're coming to worship. They need something to offer to God and you're ripping them off. And so he turns over their tables. He says, this house is supposed to be a house of prayer. And you have turned it in to a den of robbers. That reference to the den of robbers, it's so important that you know where it comes from. You may write it in the margin of your Bible. It comes from Jeremiah 7. And what's Jeremiah doing in Jeremiah 7? He's standing in the temple, preaching, just like Jesus is doing. And who's he preaching to? He's preaching to what he calls a den of robbers. Why does he call them a den of robbers? What makes them robbers? He tells us that they are oppressing the sojourner, the one who is traveling through their land who is not a Jew, like the Gentile. They are oppressing the fatherless. Who are the religious leaders indignant with here? The children. They are oppressing the widow. They are shedding innocent blood. There's no justice. They are worshiping false gods. They're ripping off the weak and they're ripping God off of the worship that is due him. They're robbers. Where do robbers hide out normally? I mean, maybe you like westerns. Maybe you like heist movies. When somebody comes and rips off a bank, rips off a museum, where do they go hide? Maybe in their den, their cave, out in the woods, their secret hideout down by the river. Where are these robbers hiding out? in plain daylight, smack dab in the middle of the temple. They're seeking refuge from their robbery in God's house through their religious rituals. They think they're safe because of their role in ministry. They think they're safe because they are Israel, the people of God. And Jeremiah says, uh-uh. Yeah, you can reside in this house if you repent. But if you do not repent, you're not going to find refuge. This is not going to be no den for robbers. You're going to be removed. And in fact, this house itself will be removed if you don't repent. Do you see that that's what Jesus' action is speaking? 
Friends, we love the gospel rightly. We love to hear about Jesus who came into town on a donkey instead of on a war horse. It's good news for us. It should cause us to rejoice. Do you believe the other truth about Jesus? Or just the first one? He is a gracious Savior. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. But he is a righteous judge. The first truth should cause us to rejoice and receive him right now. The second should cause us to repent with humility. That's the second response. Why do I say that? Because Jesus' actions are pointing to Jeremiah's words, and that's what Jeremiah is calling for. So what does that mean for you? Can I put it straight? You can't expect heaven if you're living like hell. Don't think you're going to be able to find refuge in this church if you haven't repented of your sins. Your religious ritual, your association with Christian culture, it won't won't protect you when God shows up in the person of his son on a war horse. Go read Revelation 19. It's coming. The house will be swept clean. And no shallow, just words only are going to work on that day. Those who have truly received Jesus as Savior will repent of their sins and be making progress in the faith. Now, some of you may be saying, look, we're not hiding behind our rituals. I mean, look at this church. I mean, as Don Davis once said, I got to take the elevator to get to low church. Right? I mean, there's no religious rituals at the bridge. You better believe that evangelicals got all kind of religious rituals. Nothing wrong with them. In fact, most of them are good. Praying the prayer, that's something that we talk about. Will that protect you on the day when Jesus came? The prayer you prayed as a child, if you're living now as though Jesus is not Lord, I wouldn't bet on that. What about the religious ritual of your baptism? I hope if you have professed faith in Christ, you are baptized. But what does baptism represent? Somebody who's died to sin and been raised to new life in Christ. It doesn't matter if you were baptized back then, but you're living now as though sin is alive and Christ is dead. There's not going to be no refuge in that religious ritual. You'll be removed. What about your participation, your attendance in the church, your giving to the church, your service in the church? All fruit 
But if you give yourself on Sunday, but on Monday, I go to talk to your coworkers and say, tell me about them. I was in the business world. My Christian guys that worked for me were some of the most despicable, dishonest, uncaring. You can't find refuge in the church if you don't actually love the God who saved you. And he's not just a savior, he's the king. What did we need saved from? Rebellion. It doesn't make any sense that if we're now in God's house, in God's family, that we would keep living as though we were not. We must, to enter the kingdom of God, become like the little children in the temple. Like the blind and the lame in the temple who say, I have nothing to offer Everything comes from you, but also like people who now say, I bow the knee to the king. I'm not going to be perfect, but I'm going to live a life of repentance. Every day of my life is turning around and turning back to Jesus. That is what we are called to do, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Let's look now at the third Action. Jesus cursing the fruitless fig tree. What does this action speak? That Jesus will come to judge the unrepentant. I've already said it, but I think that's what this is saying. What does John the Baptist say earlier in the book? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What does Jesus say? The tree that does not bear fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Jeremiah is describing these unrepentant robbers in chapter 7. Guess what he calls the unrepentant in chapter 8? A fruitless fig tree. You think Jesus' action here is intentional? I think it's quite intentional. What he's saying is this. Jerusalem has become unfruitful because they're not the real deal. They haven't repented of their sins. The prophets have come to them time and time again trying to get their attention with words, with actions. God is gracious. God is patient. But they refuse to heed the words. And so he says, this tree, it's not going to be anymore. It's going to be cut down. It's going to be thrown into the fire. And that's what happened. AD 70, the Roman government came in. They burned Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. But did you know this same warning applies to each of us who are here today? If we do not repent of our sin and live lives that bear fruit in keeping with our repentance, we too will meet this judgment. Matthew has said throughout his book, this external righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, that's not real fruit. That's like stapled on fruit. We want fruit that comes from hearts that have been born again by God and that show themselves 
and growth over the course of time. If not, we'll be cut down and thrown in the fire. I just want to say it one more time. We should rejoice in a gracious Savior, but we also have to realize that He is a righteous judge. So we should receive Him and we should repent. But that's not actually what this action is calling us to. Did you notice that as we read it? It's a different kind of thing. And it teaches us that we should respond by praying for the kingdom to come. Look at verse 20. Look at verse 20. The disciples asked Jesus how the fig tree withered at once. How did this happen? And he could have said, look, don't you get it? I'm the son of God. I've got the authority to do that kind of thing, right? But he doesn't say that. Instead, he goes on to teach them a lesson about how they should respond to what they have just seen. Look at verses 21 to 22 again. This is wild. Jesus answered them, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, this is generally teaching us about the power of prayer. You may be thinking, how does this belong in all of this stuff about salvation and judgment and faith and repentance? Well, I think there's a more specific application that Jesus has in mind. Notice, he says, if you say to this mountain, what mountain? Well, remember, they're on a mountain right now. They're on the Temple Mount. They're on the Mount of Olives. I think what Jesus is saying here is that he's going to use their prayer to accomplish God's purposes. So he's already announced the trees withered. Jerusalem is going to go bye-bye. You'll see that in a couple weeks in chapter 24. And now he's saying, hey, this isn't just me. This isn't just the Father. You, the church, my disciples, through getting on your knees, God is going to use you to accomplish his purposes. The robbers who are seeking refuge in God's house, they will be no more. But did you know he's going to use your prayers to accomplish that purpose? I think that's what Jesus is saying. So how does that apply to us today? Friends, the scriptures speak very clearly that there's a day coming when there will be no more sickness, no more sorrow. You looking forward to that day? There's a day coming when there will be no more opposition to Christ and to his church. Are you looking forward to that day? There will be a day coming when there is no more sin in our community, in your heart. Are you looking forward to that day when God cleans the house of your heart? I am. Did you know that God wants to use your prayers right now 
to hasten that coming day. So let us pray. His kingdom is coming. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray for that day to come. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. Authority to save. Let us rejoice and receive him right now. He has authority to judge as well. So let us repent right now and then let us get on our knees and say, come. Let us shout out, Hosanna. Save us, we pray. And then let us cry out, Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Let us pray. Father, help us to embrace your Son as both Savior and Lord. Grant us genuine faith that bears fruit in keeping with repentance. I pray right now that the seed of the gospel that has been sown in this place will not fall on hard ground not fall on thorny ground, but it will fall on good soil. And that this word from your prophet, from your son, from Jeremiah, from Jesus, would yield a hundredfold in this congregation to the praise of your glory and your grace. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.